welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. I'm Brandon. And today we're doing a panel on drug use and abuse during the coronavirus pandemic. Today we've got a bunch of people with us to discuss these issues and just talk about some of the different aspects of this pandemic that aren't talked about as much as, say, the, the death toll or the virus itself and things of that nature. Today we're going to be focusing on the increased rate of drug use and abuse, linkages to mental health and suicide, things of that nature. So today we have, like I said, a number of people with us. And so I wanted to give them all a chance before we get started, just to briefly introduce themselves. Um, for those that are opting not to be anonymous, they can give your name and maybe your occupation and what makes you interested in the topic. And then for those that are anonymous, feel free not to state your name, but if you want to just give either your profession or your interest in the topic or why you decided to join us today. That way the listeners can just get a feel for who they're listening to, what areas of expertise are present in the discussion, and then we'll go from there. So we can go ahead and start with the two people that aren't anonymous. We can go ahead and start with Scott and then jump to Bryce afterwards. Okay, Zach, I like the way you introduced us, a bunch of people here today. So <laughs> I'm glad to be part of the bunch anyway. Anyway, this is Scott H. Silverman. That's part of my brand. So and I've been public about my own personal journey in recovery for a little over 35 years. I'm here in San Diego. I'm a crisis coach, a family navigator. What that means is I help families get their loved ones access to treatment and deal with behavioral issues to try to help guide and navigate their uh, loved ones to get the best and highest level of care. Grew up in San Diego and I run an outpatient program called Confidential Recovery. My goal each day when I wake up is to do everything I can to try to help save lives. And I, I look forward to this discussion and I'm excited about the opportunity to talk about it. And I think you said, Zach, it's, it's uh, something we're not talking enough about. And I don't know, what are we in the seventh month of this uh, pandemic? I mean, I'm at that age group where I've been staying at home, kind of sequestered, uh, avoiding any exposure that I need to, and got a good colleague and a couple of clinicians that work with me at Confidential to try to help. And we still see groups in person for those who really want to, and a lot of people really want to, especially those who have a nudge from the judge and have to get their hours <laughs> in. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm happy to answer any questions that come up, any feedback that comes up, and I'm honored to be a small part of Awesome. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining us. And we're excited to have your expertise and your perspective in the discussion. Bryce, if you wanted to take over and introduce yourself. Absolutely. My name is Bryce Morrison. I'm a former Navy drug and alcohol counselor. I spent 11 years in the Navy. I left in 2003. And while I was there, I actually went to Scott's home and, and spent some time in San Diego about two and a half months. They called it mental boot camp. And I learned how to be a counselor. My background is that I bought into the say no to drugs from an early age. And I grew up with that thought process. And I didn't even drink until I was 21. Part of that was personal experience. I had some people in my life that were impacted by drugs and alcohol. And I decided that I didn't want to go down that path. Now I own a travel agency. I don't work in the field, but this is something that very much interests me, especially because of what is going on right now. Thanks, Bryce. Likewise, equally happy to have you as a part of the conversation and have your expertise and perspective. Uh, interestingly, I didn't actually know you two were connected. So Bryce, we had interviewed previously on the show, 
Mm-hmm. And Scott, we got connected through Facebook, but it's a small world, I guess. To be clear, it's San Diego. Got it. I, I don't know yeah. Scott, but... There's only there's only 3.3 million of us, and you know it's kind of like my people, the Jewish. Everyone thinks everyone knows everybody, and everyone knows everybody. I'm on Medicare, and everyone knows everybody on Medicare. But uh, you know, we I'm sure the fact that our visions are similar, and the, and the you know the experience that he's had probably we may have bumped into each other at some point. And I used to be a unlicensed pharmacist, so who knows? He may have been a consumer of mine at some point. <laughs> I like that title. I might have to add that to mine: unlicensed pharmacist. Correct. Retired. Retired. My daughter's retired, an attorney. Retired, my, retired. my daughter's an attorney. She says, stop saying that publicly. <laughs> I said, I am a retired unlicensed uh, pharmacist. But the cool thing about that is when I get into groups, uh, and we'll talk more about that, um, I bring a perspective to the meeting that's a little unusual based on the traditional behavioral health experts that sit in a room and clinicians that sit in a room that may or may not have had that experience with mood altering substances. So it's just a sentence on the bio. That was an amazing teaser. <laughs> All right. And so with that, I just want to turn it over to if either of the two anonymous uh, people in the chat want to give a brief intro. Like I said, you don't have to give your name if you wouldn't like to, but if you just wanted to give, you know, either your profession or your interest in the subject or or really anything like that, I'll leave it up to you. So either one of you can go ahead and start uh, if you'd like. I can uh, go ahead and introduce. First of all, Zach, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, my name's Mike. I live in the uh, Cleveland area. I work as uh, an occupational therapist um, in home health in the Akron area. Been practicing for about two years. Zach actually invited me on. We got into a conversation. I uh, disclosed my uh, history of uh, drinking to him. We got into a conversation and I've uh, been living sober for about six years now. Drug of choice was uh, drinking. So I have not relapsed, thankfully, during the uh, the pandemic. But then again, my uh, routine has not really changed a whole lot during the pandemic, aside from, you know, kind of going to work and doing my thing and having those few months where we were actually just locked down and weren't really able to go anywhere. But I did have my fiance, who was a big rock for me, you know, during that time. I don't know if things would have been different if I was alone. But yeah, I'm just, um, you know, curious to hear the conversation. Um, I haven't really had much of an opportunity, or I should say I haven't really initiated opportunities for myself to, you know, talk to others, you know, go to groups and have these types of discussions. I've been relatively private about it, you know, other than close friends and family. So um, hopefully, you know, I can chime in a little bit, offer some perspective and uh, really, you know, looking forward to hearing from all you guys and hear your perspective on everything. So uh yeah, looking forward to it. And Zach, uh, thanks again for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you join us. So then we've just got one other person. I uh, wasn't sure if you wanted to give a little brief introduction. Sure. I'm, uh, I'm Ken Farage. I'm anonymous, but I'm not that anonymous. I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist at the University of Michigan. My research interests are really sort of basic. The brain systems, what do they do for wanting and liking things? Um, what's the nature of liking and wanting? How do they go together and how do they come apart? And how do they have slightly different brain systems? But about 30 years ago with Terry Robinson, a colleague here, we proposed the incentive sensitization theory of addiction that suggested that in addiction, brain dopamine systems don't mediate pleasure liking, but they do mediate wanting for pleasures. And in addiction, these systems can become hyper-reactive to drugs and drug cues. And in the last 10 years, there's been a little bit of evidence saying that in some behavioral addictions like compulsive gambling and compulsive sex addiction, the brain systems of some individuals may also be hyperreactive to their particular cue. Drugs induce sensitization, but sensitization can happen in these brain systems sometimes spontaneously. 
So that's my research interest. Every once in a while, I interact with sort of more practical things. I've spoken with public defenders, for example, in Detroit. They're interested in brain theories of addiction and what that meant for clients that they defend. Um, is it reasonable, for example, for a judge to ask so- someone to say, stay absolutely drug free and pass urine tests as a condition for going on parole or, or not being sentenced right away? And I'm interested in, in debates that come up about whether addiction should be thought of as a brain disease or as not a brain disease or as a choice like any other choice. And I'm really here because, Zach, you asked me. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for, for joining us. And again, happy to have you with us and happy to have your perspective. That's everyone right now. I think we can just jump right into it and start talking. So like we said, this is an element of the pandemic that really hasn't been talked about nearly as much as, well, as the pandemic itself or as the death toll or the politics of it all. And so I just wanted to jump into what you all think broadly about this aspect of the pandemic and how you think that this is going to affect things going forward. So I know that's very broad and so it's kind of open to interpretation and wherever this takes us. But why do you think that this aspect of the pandemic hasn't been discussed as much as these other aspects, as the, as the politics, as the death toll, as you know, everything that we have been talking about? Why is it that this aspect seems to be swept under the rug and not talked about quite as much? So this is Bryce. I personally believe that it's politically motivated. The media is is much more interested in speaking about the negative aspects of people going out, not wearing masks, not staying six feet apart, et cetera, et cetera. They are hyper-focused on that. If they talk about what it means to stay home, then it takes away from that aspect of it. I don't believe that they have any interest at all in talking about how detrimental it has been for kids and many, many adults to stay home. Um, Zach, I'll jump in. Uh, This is Brandon. I would say as a whole, I think many people have many different uh, coping mechanisms that they're not necessarily going to tell one coping mechanism is worse than the other. So before the pandemic, you know, you would normally see uh, discussions or at least uh, commercials about gambling addictions or, you know, smoking marijuana or, you know, heroin uh, crisis, uh, the opioid crisis as a whole. I haven't seen nearly any of that. And whether that being the, the, the COVID is more of a focus or people are just allowing themselves to deal with this however they may, because, you know, no one's experienced this in our lifetime. I think as a whole, they're just trying to deal with broader issues that are easier to put as a, a, a breaking news on CNN or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. It definitely hasn't been talked about like it had been pre-pandemic. And it does. It leads to some implications about lockdowns and about the whole approach to the pandemic that people may not want to discuss. Obviously, having everyone locked down has led to a lot more people taking drugs, many more people relapsing, taking drugs for the first time, things of that nature. The CDC listed basically that 13.3% of the respondents in, in a survey that they did had either started or increased their substance use to cope with stress or emotions related to COVID-19. And I think that that's something that we've all seen or heard about in some capacity. It's a little unfortunate. We don't have the paramedic that was going to join us. Mm -hmm. He basically said that he's been getting calls much more often about overdoses and, and things of that nature. 
So jumping to that aspect of this, the idea of starting substance use or increasing your level of substance use, you know, broadly speaking, do you think that it makes sense in response to something like COVID-19? And then also, what do you think are the implications of seeing this large of an increase in, in usage? And again, just to anyone who, who wants to jump in. Mr. Scott, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to it. I, um, I sit on a variety of committees. I'm on the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force and Methamphetamine Drug Abuse Task Force. And that's not to brag because these are no fun to be on these groups. So we get, we get data from the county uh, updates. And it's, fa it's fascinating. The last two years or so, most of the data has been coming from the medical examiner because people are just kind of, you know, kind of bypassing the emergency department simply because they're overdosing. And I know in our community, uh, fentanyl overdoses are up 32% as of uh, July. And the data that they're gathering, again, it's pretty factual because it's coming from the medical examiner. What's interesting, though, is suicide rate, they say, has stayed the same. And I find that fascinating. But on the other hand, there's, you know, the accidental overdose. And then there's the overdose for uh, purposeful outcomes, unfortunately, that create that morbidity rate. But I think the individual who suffers from, I call this a disease of addiction, and I liken it to diabetes. You know, you, you, you're born with it. You don't make a choice. And I know from my own personal experience, I never woke up and said, I'm going to terrorize my whole family all day today and the rest of the week because it's just fun to do. So my experience has been um, specifically through the COVID piece. Uh, people are at home more and people isolate more. And that's a great, great uh, fountain for people to kind of, you know, pivot to doing more and more substance abuse. So what I'm hearing is people who are casual drinkers are now abusers and people that are abusers have got full-blown issues going on. But because people are home, they're not driving around as much. So DUIs are way down. But domestic violence is up significantly. Child abuse is up uh, significantly. And with schools being closed, that's where a lot of it's being reported. So I think what's going to happen, we're, we're going to see when the CDC starts to do their, their new counts, uh, probably not till next year, the outcomes are going to be a lot more severe than we could ever imagine. And because they're at home, you know, this is a disease of denial. I mean, when you're home and you can't leave, what a great excuse. And an interesting outcome also of this is, um, you know, most inpatient treatment programs are seeing a downturn in clients coming in uh, because an example I hear all the time is, you know, the heroin addict is at home injecting heroin uh, and is concerned about getting the COVID by going into treatment. <laughs> imagine, you know, imagine someone sitting at home each day, you know, shooting up heroin, mixing it with fentanyl, but doesn't want to go an inpatient program. And the family's like, well, yeah, we get it. We don't want you to get the virus. So treatment in its own modality is down, at least the attendance is so far, but the morbidity rate is up and it's up everywhere. And I don't even think, we, you know, I don't think we talk about it because when you look at the scale of what's informationally important, um, I think you said it, Bryce, is, you know, it's just not a, it's not a priority when you think about it. You know, with, when you, the death count right now, I don't know, we're getting close to 200,000 who have died in last year alone, 2019, 72,000 people died from uh, substance abuse. And a lot of that was overdosing from opioids. So it's, and that's been going on for over a decade. So when you think about the number, it's significant, but you know, the stigma is still around substance abuse and there's still people who believe that it's a moral failing, you know, and when businesses talk about having it within their four walls, there's a form of admission that goes on. You know, 15% of the country currently has an active addiction issue that will erupt. And those 15% that are impaired on a daily basis, unfortunately, will impact seven people negatively every single day. So if you take the 70% of the pop and you put the 15% on top of it, 
And there are groups that have even more first responders are north of 25%. So that's 85% of our population right now. And we're talking just substance abuse. We're not even talking about other, other behavioral things that are, you know, comorbidity issues that, that, that contribute to it. And a lot of uh, addicts and alcoholics, you know, they don't just do one thing. They, they do other things, gamble, sex, internet problems, uh, food, if you will. And they act out inappropriately, but it's harder, obviously, if you're staying home. So we're seeing it a lot in our community in, in California. And, you know, I can't speak to the parts, but of course, I've been on a lot of calls in the last three months with a lot of national advocates and behavioral health experts. And it's it's growing everywhere, places that wouldn't normally go. And, and, you know, I don't even know if we'll have time to talk about the dark web, but you know, you can get anything you want today on the dark web and have it delivered to you through uh, USPS or, you know, have a local Uber or Lyft driver delivered to your home. So in California, just became a state legalized marijuana. So we have a lot of issues. And unfortunately, uh, we're not talking about it, you know, but we are today. And I, and I really appreciate it and applaud it. And I hope I keep mentioning it because what you guys are doing today is rare. And I think it needs to be heard and families need to know that there's help and hope. I just wanted to say, I, I piggyback on all of what Scott just said. The one additional thing I would say is think about how many people lost income. I own a travel agency. My entire year of commissions has disappeared. It does not exist. Now for me, I, I have other avenues. I'm okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. I've, I was prepared. But there are a whole lot of people out there that have lost income. Their income has disappeared. Their, their livelihoods have disappeared. Restaurants are closing. Businesses are decimated. Imagine any one of those people who was already in a position where they could easily go down that slippery slope. Now they're stuck at home, sad, no money, marriages could be hurt. As Scott was saying, there's, there's abuse in the home, things of that nature. Where do they turn? They don't know where else to go, so they go down the bottle or they go somewhere else that's even worse. It's all linked together. You know, there's, there's before somebody else goes, I'm going to add something to that, Bryce. It's a good point. It brings it up because there is one industry that has not been impacted by this, and that is the drug distributor. And liquor sales are up 60% year to date, and they're promoting on television like I've never seen before. So there is, you know, what's that, you know, one, one man's junk is another man's treasure, but it's fascinating. And I hear this from the DEA. It's amazing. And the U.S. attorney and the district attorney's office, uh, their business is robust. They're not impacted by this. They are, they're impacted, but in, in a positive way from a business model perspective, but that just makes it easier for them to do more business because their customers just depressed and they're, you know, some of that federal bonus money was being used to purchase illicit drugs and prostitutions up in some part of the community. But it, it's just amazing how we are in this slide. I don't, I don't see this pandemic going away very soon. And I think, you know, Fauci keeps saying 2021. And I think it's just a, unfortunately something that if we don't talk about it, we're not going to reduce the stigma and we're not going to get people in treatment. You know, in telemedicine now, you can do all kinds of things online, just like you can go to meetings. But that's, I just want to sh share that, that there is an industry that continues to thrive in spite of all this, which is just to me fascinating, but not surprising. Kent, I actually had a question for you. You brought up something in our correspondence before this discussion that I thought was interesting. Basically, you had said that drug use and abuse doesn't necessarily mean addiction and that most users and abusers can give it up even for hard drugs. So I wanted to get your perspective on that and just hear you know, what you thought about the scope of this problem and assuming the you know, obviously we still have quite a bit of this pandemic in front of us, but do you think that because of that, this will be more of a, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, short-term problem and less of a long-term addiction problem? 
and more of just a spike in usage uh, and not necessarily translate to a large spike in addiction or addicts? Or do you think that those will still go hand in hand? Well, I think use certainly promotes addiction. So it's very likely there will be a rise in, in long-term consequences. But the notion, you know, it's often the critics of the brain disease notion will often raise the point that most users of drugs can give them up if they're using them in their teens or 20s. Most users can give them up in their 30s and, and you know, by the time they're 40, not using it. And that's true even in surveys of, of things like hard cocaine use. People who take even intravenous cocaine the first time, there's a certain proportion who will never take it again. There's a larger proportion of people who can take it and give it up. And then there's a smaller proportion of people, about 30%, who will become addicted and more permanently and more enduringly addicted. So those of us who are interested in addiction are really interested in what's happening in the transition that takes the, the vulnerable 30% and in the same drug experiences converts them to addicts who can't give it up in their 30s and 40s um, has it really persistent whereas that's different from the majority of users and i think um i mean there's implications too for deaths i mean most fentanyl deaths i think could happen without addiction being involved if it's an accidental death you know the speck of fentanyl that you get if it's just it's too big a speck so the the fatality may be separable from addiction per se and that doesn't mean that addiction isn't very, very powerful and fascinating and important to understand. And that's you know, really something that we have to deal with, but it may only be a small part of the use and a small part of the fatalities. I'd be interested in what Scott thinks or others. Well, unfortunately for you, I agree with you. I, you know, and, and I, I think you wanted to tickle me with that. I like that. And here's the thing that's interesting, that 15% that I've quoted, I don't think that's going to change. I don't think the, to your, to, I think to your point that the 15% of the population that's predisposed, pre-wired, you know, kind of like diabetes, I don't think that we're going to see that go to 16 or 17%. But I think that there, and I believe that there are people who, and I don't like those people that get to drink and they drink normally me off when I hear it all the time, you know, and I, I never drank with them and drug with them because they'd always go to bed early and feel refreshed the next day. And I would always have to make a bunch of phone calls apologizing for my behavior the night before. So I don't think that this environment is going to bring more customers in, if you will. I just think it's going to take those who have the issue. And I've watched it in my own Zoom groups. I see people with five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years of recovery that are relapsing right now because they're so connected to the recovery community or the, or the recovery modality that they were embracing, if you will, because they don't have that same level of connectivity, if you will, gave them, um, I don't know if the word's an excuse or an opportunity or the window just opened and they walked through. And for most people that, you know, suffer from this disease, you know, I, if I took a drink, you know, according to the science, it would be like my body didn't know I'd stop for 35 years. But I think, I think you're right. I think we're going to see more an increased morbidity rate, but I don't necessarily think the 15% is going to go to 16 or seven. I, I just don't think that's going to six, 16 or 17%. I think, and those who maybe drank more than they should normally might be drinking more, but they're not necessarily the ones who might get it. And I don't disagree with you about fentanyl, you know, the Skittles parties that are happening now where kids put their medication in a bowl and everybody grabs something at nine or 10 or one in the morning, whenever they do it. Those accidental overdoses could be someone who's trying counterfeit medication for the very first time and unfortunately uh, expiring from the dose that they took. And that's what fentanyl has brought into the world is that small, tiny little bit of dose that kills people. And since so many people are on prescribed medication, you mix, you know, like an SSRI, you know, like a Lexapro or Zoloft with a opioid, you know, you can die. And it's the first time and the only time. And that we're seeing that with 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds in our community that, uh, you know, you, you don't have enough time on the planet to really establish a, an abuse or abuse problem. But 
you can overdose. I mean, anyone can with fentanyl. It's just so toxic and so deadly and so poisonous. And a lot of the uh, drug manufacturers, the homegrown ones, are mixing it with uh, Xanax, Percocet, methamphetamine. People are smoking it with marijuana. We're seeing the, the fentanyl on the rise. And it's easy to make and it's easy to get a hold of. So, you know, that's the thing that scares me is people don't know what they're taking and the young people think, who think they're invincible. And I did. I mean, I basically dosed up every day in, in a way that should have killed me and almost did. Almost took my own, my own life over it. But that was because of the behavior and the outcome, plus the untreated trauma and, of course, the depression and anxiety right now. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will go up higher, but I don't think so. But I think we're going to see a lot more uh, morbidity uh, over time just because people... They can't get what they used to get, so they're trying something else. The experimentation level is higher than, than I've ever experienced, never seen. And I'm, you know, I like to think I'm pretty tuned into it. But, you know, there's parts of this country, there's pockets of things going on that, you know, all of a sudden you read there was 14 overdoses in a small little town. How'd that happen? Well, that's usually opioid-induced, some sort of medication that caused it. I think that definitely touched on the point that I was uh, wanting to ask uh, Mr. Kent. Overall, structurally, like, was the human transition from the social animal being more shut in and removed from their environment? And within specifically the young community, drugs are being entered into their realms. More of an option during these COVID times. I want to know, could you explain, like, how was that attraction stirred up within, like, the average young individual? And, and cognitively, how exactly, or at least why exactly is it so more invitive than, like, many other addictions? Like, I, so uh, apparently video game usage has not increased. Purchase of video games have not increased, but drug use definitely has increased within the younger population. I want to know if anyone, at least, uh, could speak on that. I think um, others here probably have more expertise on this, but, I mean, certainly we all understand that social deprivation and lack of other opportunities is going to increase the likelihood of drug use as an alternative and also as a way of getting ahead in life in, in selling drugs. You know, and that theme has been picked up in addiction neuroscience for many, many years, going back to rat park experiments that suggested that rats would become less addicted to oral morphine if they were living in a large social group than if they were living on their own. And that's absolutely true. And it's being replicated today. Um, it's showing that social reinforces having social alternatives reduces drug use. So that's true for people, it's true for rats. At the same time, we also know that you don't need to be deprived to become addicted. And there are people, there are kids from wealthy and well-endowed families who have all the social opportunities in the world who, who become addicts and that can happen too, take drugs and, and become addicts. So the social factor, that's a very powerful factor. We're gonna really expand the pool of people who are taking drugs and that's going to expand the pools of people who become addicted, but it's not a necessary requirement to become addicted. One of the things I, I wanted to mention about that, during our rehab sessions, we focused on cognitive behavior. You can say that somebody who is wealthy is not deprived, but that's not the reality. Just because you have money, just because you have food, doesn't mean you're not deprived of something. Really, it's, it's about finding what the triggers are. It's about finding what it is that you're lacking in your life and why it is that you feel the need to move outside of the norm. There's a whole lot of physical reasons, but there's a whole lot of behavioral reasons as well. Both have to be addressed. You can't deny one over the other. The one thing that Scott was talking about earlier was the ability to attend meetings has gotten easier through things like Zoom. However, there's a whole lot to be said about somebody putting on pants and going out the door to get to a meeting. Throughout my career as a substance abuse counselor, 
I watched people become, for lack of a better term, addicted to meetings. They would go from one meeting to the next to the next, drinking coffee and having cigarettes, because that replaced them using whatever their choice of substance was until they could get to a point where they figured out, oh, this is what's lacking in my life and could work towards replacing that with better behaviors. Mike, I wanted to kick it over to you. You mentioned something early on that I wanted to touch on. You had mentioned that, you know, if you didn't have your, your, your significant other, that your situation may be a little bit different. And so I was hoping that you could kind of expand on that a little bit and maybe talk about how either personally that has made things easier for you or whether you think that will open up a broader or changed discussion on how we approach these kinds of problems and how important things like, you know, a social network and a group of people that support you are in these kinds of issues. Obviously, that's still something that is often discussed with addiction and it's often discussed with drug use, but do you think that this pandemic has illustrated that even more? And do you think that that's helped you to not relapse? And do you think that it would have helped any others to, to do the same? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting, because I definitely think if I was here, like alone in the apartment, I think I would definitely kind of start getting kind of wrapped up in my own head. Um, if I have idle time by myself, I've had history of, you know, health anxiety. And uh, that's actually the reason I got into drinking in the first place. You know, I was 17, 18, you know, started to drink and I just kind of really fell in love with that. Just kind of how it, you know, released my social inhibitions. I could just kind of be myself. Um, you know, obviously after a while, that's kind of the crutch that I, I leaned on to, to deal with my, you know, social anxiety and I really feel like if I didn't have Krista, uh, my fiance, during this time, I really think those triggers that, you know, Bryce spoke about, where you kind of really have to get to the root of those triggers as to why you're using drugs and alcohol in the first place. Why are you having those mental breakdowns and what's kind of leading to that impulsive behavior to use whatever drug it might be? If I was just getting myself into the routine where, you know, I'm going to work, coming home, I mean, you know, there's still people that I could, you know, call during that time, especially during the height of the pandemic, you know, March, April, May, when I really just was not going out. It was pretty much a lockdown. Um, there's people I could, of course, you know, talk to for support. But just really having that person here where we were kind of sharing in the same experience. We both work in healthcare. We were both, you know, seeing some patients who, you know, have COVID. Um, it was a scary time. Uh, to, so to, to be able to connect with someone, you know, on that level to where we were maintaining some type of normalcy, if you will, during that time, you know, we didn't lose our jobs, you know, God forbid. Um, you know, I know couples who, small kids, you know, they both lost their jobs and they were they were stressed to the max. And uh, I could definitely see where a situation like that, you know, if I had small children, uh, both me and my spouse, you know, lost our, our livelihood, you know, our jobs that I could easily fall back into uh, drinking, you know. Um, and, and that's and that's the scary thing. Um, something I always think about is it could take one event in, in life where that could really test my sobriety and just how impulsive it is. Just thinking back in the past when I would smoke, you know, I would quit and maybe let's say like a breakup or some life event just brought me right back into it. Um, so that's really scary. Um, so I could easily see if I did not have my fiance here during that time, if I was by myself, I would definitely have moments that would test me and my sobriety. 
But uh, yeah, having her just really helped a lot. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> I guess I'm kind of kind of rambling at this point. But yeah, having her just helped tremendously. And I'm not saying, you know, I haven't struggled over the past, you know, six or seven months. There's, you know, there's been some trying times, but she, you know, has really um, made it like a much easier time overall. Just having her as my constant, you know, day in, day out. Really thankful really grateful that I've been able to maintain my, you know, sobriety during this time. Cause it's, it's been quite a year for, for everyone. So. Yeah, definitely. And congratulations too, by the way, you know, for not relapsing and for, for being able to stick it out through this pandemic. It's obviously been a tricky year for everyone, but tacking that on top of everything only makes it that much harder. I kind of wanted to turn to a slight political point. The one thing that I've heard come up in a couple conversations between friends and on social media is whether it's marijuana dispensaries or stores that sell alcohol, all of them being listed as essential businesses. But I just wanted to get all of your thoughts on the nature of whether or not these businesses are, should be considered essential. Previously, being on your show, I talked about legalization of marijuana and other drugs as well. My thought process, and this is my opinion, and based on my history and what I've experienced and what I've seen, and the history of our country, I don't believe that shutting down dispensaries or alcohol liquor stores would do anything I do recognize that the availability can be challenging for some, but I also recognize we had prohibition and the underground and, and everything else. If, if I can't get alcohol, then I'm going to look for the guy on the corner that's selling marijuana, whatever the case may be. If you try to, to stop the flow, we've seen it just doesn't do it. We've got we've to get to the source. We've got to help everybody where they're at. It's more about the rehabilitation. It's more about the cognitive behavioral therapy. It's more about meeting people where they are. It's not about the substance or about the liquor or about anything else. I like the way you frame that, a, a little political issue. I, I think that's an oxymoron. <laughs> I'm not really sure. You know, I, I, um, I've met so many drug seekers in my time that, you know, you, 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 shut, you know, we run a treatment center, you know, we're considered essential. So we're open, you know, and a lot of the industry has shifted to telemedicine, but most of the insurance companies don't want to pay for telemedicine because they feel if you're not showing up for group or you're not going to treatment, they're not going to pay for it. So in they, you know, I think they're extending it now because they really feel like they're going to get sued if they don't. But at the end of the day, you know, I, you know, we, we, we're hearing now that restaurants now are becoming new incubators for, you know, the virus growing and going. And I, I don't see it. I don't know. Maybe I don't see it politically. I just think that, you know, we, we have to use good common sense and we have to make informed decisions. And I think, I think I agree with Bryce that, you know, we close all the liquor stores, you know, you know, people are going to, they're going to find something, you know, and the states that first opened up and legalized marijuana, you know, there was a major abuse issue going on and people taking smoking marijuana that, you know, hadn't done it in the same way. And that, you know, it's 28 times stronger than when I smoked it. So I think the behavioral piece of this disease, the causation of it and how we treat it. And then more importantly, how we get people in recovery. It's kind of like, again, I want to go back to diabetes. When you have an issue, you go to the doctor, you have a blood test, you get assessed and the doctor gives you a, a life plan. I mean, you're going to check your blood sugar levels, 
throughout the day. And if there's a shift, you're going to take insulin. You're going to watch your diet. You're going to watch what you put in your body. You, know, you don't have to, but if you don't, the consequences are pretty severe. So to me, it's the same thing. You know, stopping is hard, but staying stopped, if you will. And you know, I was on a call yesterday with the County of San Diego. I think we had 400 people on the call. And one of our big topics was how do we do this thing alone? And you can't. The guest said it, you know, that if you didn't have somebody at home, of course, you know, my wife has been married a long time. So in some ways she irritates my recovery, but that's why I'm in the shed. You, you know, you those of you can see me. I'm, I'm literally in this eight by 10 shed. So when we both work from home and I was lucky to be able to do that and it's been tough, but still, I think that taking people's business away and I've, I've seen a lot of people, I think our community, 30% of the population that was working, is not working now and they may not go back to work. And I don't know, you know, I, I used to be a homeless provider for 18 years running a nonprofit charitable organization and Right now, people who are underemployed are in line for food and the food lines are longer than they've ever been and they're running out of resources to feed people. So it's very scary. You know? So I think you know, we got to do what we got to do. And we're, we're in this environment now. I don't think anyone that I know of that's been on the planet in the last 50 years has seen anything like this. So we're really experiencing a perfect storm. Plus, we're in this hugely crazy political time and people are making decisions based on their political commitments and their party they belong to, you know? So to me, if you're informed and you're, you have the information you need and you're using good common sense and you're talking to others and you're seeking help, because I see people having problems now that a year ago you'd never think, and, and it doesn't matter how much you have or you don't have. Coping with what we're doing right now is not easy. And I don't care how prepared you are. And I can't even tell you how many people I've seen in the field of, you know, I call myself a hopeless helper how many clinicians, psychologists, and psychiatrists I've seen that are just, they're hating life right now because their world is treating people that come to them to talk about their problems and they're not seeing clients. I've got a buddy of mine that actually does a podcast here in San Diego, psychiatrist, and he's lost four friends. I mean, that are psychiatrists in the last 90 days that are taking their own life because, uh, I don't know who said earlier that the part of the process is, you know, you go to these, you know, there's a saying in the program, half the people go to the meetings to hear how bad it is for everybody else so they can feel better about their own life and not having that or finding a way to substitute for it, even though Zoom meetings are great. I mean, I've enjoyed them, but I'm ADHD. So when I see 40, 50, 100 people on a screen, I'm just, my, uh, my endorphins are kicked in and you know my brain feels better because I'm, I'm not alone at that moment. My meeting's a 6.45 a.m. meeting and I, I actually, I used to look forward to going every single Saturday, picking up a meeting you know once a week or so, but not having that every day, I'm, I'm actually going to four, I'm going to more meetings now that I ever have before. And part of it's because I want the connectivity and I miss that part of it. And I used to look forward to doing all that on a Saturday and now I do it in bits and pieces throughout the week. And I'm actually talking to more people in the program than I ever had personally, because I'm genuinely want to value the work that I've done in my own sobriety. But you know, that fear, you know, F everything and run keeps me connected and forces me to do things that, you know, I wouldn't have done before because I think it's important and that's what I share, but I think we have to have informed decisions. So I don't know if it's political or not, or I don't know if I even answered your question, but I, uh, you know, I don't like the way things are, are going. And look, we're in, a, we're in California, we have a very strong governor and our town's been pretty much shut down. And, you know, we have beaches and parks and we have great weather and people have not been able to go out and run around and, and do things. And if they do it, you know, they're, they're running a risk. So tough times. I completely agree. I see that as a whole, solitude is like probably the most powerful temptation uh, for at least recovering addicts within this time. Uh, I just had a question in general. What are some of the signs that are people that are home and alone, like as recovering addicts, uh, what are some signs that maybe the beginnings of a slippery slope and what are things they can kind of like wake themselves out of it or 
what are some ways they can strengthen their 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 will to not try to relapse? Or I mean, um, one of our listeners had his wife, his fiance, uh, who's there for him through the entirety of the time. Uh, what are some other ways that people who are alone could uh, use to not relapse? I'm here in Florida, so very very different politically, different things happening over here. Here in Florida, we have opened back up, and I actually have friends that during the, the strictest part of the lockdown became substance abusers. Now, this is very different than somebody who is addicted to a substance, because in their case, there is no real true slippery slope. They could stay abusers for a very long time. And every bit of that abuse damages their body. But ultimately, as things are opening back up, they're hitting the gym, they're going out to the beach, they're doing other things, and they're not sitting in their apartment or wherever the case may be, drinking and smoking nearly as much as they were before the lockdown. For them, it's opened back up. So that leads me to answer your question. One thing is exercise. Even if you're at home, even if you have to turn on the TV and do, I can't even think of the dance thing, Zumba, mm -hmm. do some exercise because just sitting around, it, it messes with everybody's head. It's messed with my head just sitting around. And it's not about the substance for me, but it's not good. Mm -hmm. And I just, I need to move. So the more I move, the better off I am both physically and mentally. And I think that's a great place to start. Get moving. I completely agree. From, from a neuroscience background, just being active, moving around, even getting vitamin D. I'm sure Joe Rogan has, is probably sponsored by vitamin D by now, but even going outside and seeing the sun, the introduction of the sunlight itself onto your body can bring up your mood. And some, for some people, get out of the funk that they've been in for the past couple of months. Yeah, I also want to echo the the exercise point. You know, that's one thing that I've been trying to stay on top of during lockdown. Um, you know, I've suffered with anxiety and depression in the past, and I have the, I guess, fortunate situation of being extremely introverted. And so this lockdown hasn't been quite as bad for me. I've almost loved not having to deal with people not as much and, and loved being at home more. But, but it is tough. You know, it's tough being isolated. It's tough being cut away from all, you know, social exposure and, and your daily routine and getting up and going to the gym and having, you know, the motivation to do these things. You know, it's a lot easier to well, at least personally, it's a lot easier to motivate yourself to go to the gym if you know you're doing it right before or right after work and you're going out anyway. And, you know, it's part of your routine when you're stuck at home and you really don't have a routine. It's tough, but, you know, it's super important and it definitely, definitely helps with not just preventing relapse and, you know, preventing drug use, but just mood in general and things like, you know, my anxiety and depression have been much better when I work out and I notice that they get much worse when I stop working out for a little while. This conversation is a good segue into mental health in general. We've kind of touched on it here and there uh, and we've said how it is impacted simultaneously with all this and drug use and mental health issues are kind of playing off of each other in this pandemic and exacerbating each other. But how do you all see that playing into either the remainder of the pandemic or after all of this is over? You know, obviously we'll have the drug issues to deal with, 
but the increases in mental health issues and anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, suicidality, or at least, you know, at least thoughts of suicide and things of that nature, you know, those are some other things that the CDC had mentioned in that study that they had done that I had mentioned earlier about substance use. So they also found that 40.9% of the respondents that they had gotten had reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition, including, and so 30.9% of that was anxiety and depressive disorder symptoms. 26.3% was symptoms of trauma or stress-related disorder. 10.7% of them had seriously considered suicide in the, in the 30 days before the survey. And so all of these were you know, higher than typical and are things that are absolutely going to be factors going forward, you know, and things that aren't just going to disappear once the economy reopens and things go back to quote unquote normal. So how do you all see that playing into this, this issue of drug use and abuse? And do you think that reopening and starting, you know, back at full swing or whatever the process winds up being, where do we go from here? Where do you see these issues going and, you know, being impacted afterwards? This is Scott. I would say, I didn't know you could exercise, by the way, during the, <laughs> the virus. I mean, I'm just, wearing the, legal? I'm, I'm just wearing the same pair of shorts that have a lot of elastic in the waist. I mean, I, people talk about the COVID weight gain. And, and so I'm giving myself permission since people are talking about it. But, you know, we, we don't go out, my wife and I. We, you know, only if we have to and it's once a week to kind of get basic supplies. I think that I'm kind of hopeful that what people will do is they'll start to realize, you know, this may go on. I think we've kind of hung on to, you know, we've been listening to people, you know, we're hearing two different stories, you know, it's going to go away. No, it's not. I think people will have to make a decision that they're going to have to make some major life changes. And I don't mean major, major, but, you know, things like taking a half an hour in the morning, doing some meditation, do some journaling, watch a movie you know, have some fun food, practice mindfulness, learn how to breathe differently because there's resources out there. And, you know, I'm a, I run, a, I have a, my own podcast that I do and I record every week and I, you know, we're talking about these things every week and, and I'm bringing, I brought a psychic in to talk. I brought in two weeks, I have the uh, San Diego chief of police coming in to talk and I had a divorce coach on the, on the show yesterday and we're trying to just find ways to, you know, ask people to, you know, empower themselves. I mean, there's no reason that we should sit at home and melt like a candle. There's no reason for it. But people who didn't have the tools before in order to acquire them are going to have to reach out. You know, if it's not, if it's not within your own gut, you're going to have to say to yourself, you know, I, and I started last week, started walking a little bit every day and I'm going to increase that. And I have three dogs. I have no excuses. And I live in a neighborhood and we have the weather. We can do it. But at the end of the day, it, it wasn't organic for me. So I have to make these changes. And I think we're all going to have to find new ways to live with what's going on in today's world. And I don't think anyone is prepared for it. I mean, I have a, a book coming out about, it's called the opioid you know, epidemic. And I have decided to wait to put it out because I just don't want to get it lost in what's going on right now. But I hope to have it done by the end of you know, October and then I'll release it when the timing is right. But I think it's very topical now, but I don't want it to get lost with what's going on in the conversation because so many people are struggling with it. You know, over 180 people die every day behind opioids whether it's prescription medication or you know, street drugs or a combination of both. For me, I, when people ask me, you know, first, never do this alone. I mean, you can't make changes in your life. It's really hard. Ask for help. 
those are the three hardest words I need help to ask in any being, in my opinion, the core of being a human being, because asking for help is hard. And it means you have, you may have, someone may perceive you as weak, so you don't do it. So we need to make some changes. And I, I encourage people to make changes, whatever that might look like. You know, and if you're not sure, people say, well, I don't know what that means. Well, get online, you know, watch a TED talk, uh, get onto a Zoom call, talk to your friends or your family. And if they're not the ones you want to talk to, talk to your, uh, your cohorts, some coworkers, because when you're telling somebody about your problem, in my opinion, they're feeling better about theirs. You know, I believe in that adage that you, you know, if you don't give it away, you can't keep it. And that's my philosophy. I mean, I'm a consultant who's paid by the hour and I've probably given more pro bono time away this year than ever and just announced yesterday. Anybody who heard my voice, they can call me and I give out my phone number all the time. By the way, I haven't done that yet. So I'm going to do it real quick. 619-993-2738. Anybody can call or text me if they want to and we can talk about it. I mean, and when you call me, and I love seeing strange numbers in my phone. To me, it's an opportunity to be of service and to help. So at reaching out, asking for help, talking to others, Zoom, Zumba, whatever that's called, you know, get your heart rate up, uh, do some sit-ups in the morning, uh, sleep in some mornings, you know, just change it up a little bit and uh, make some fun food, learn how to cook. Cooking shows, I understand the ratings on those right now are significant. My wife watches it every night. I don't like them. All they do is yell at each other about the recipes being wrong, but that's a source of entertainment and it's a, support, it's a, it's a source of diversion. So I don't know if that helps or not. You know, uh, Scott, you were, you were talking about getting help and you also talked about taking those first steps. One of the things that you definitely wanna do is if you have been sedentary, make sure you are communicating with your doctor. I had knee surgery many years ago, and during the knee surgery, I started playing video games, which it surprises me that the video game numbers are not up, because when I was sitting still, that's all I did. I played video games, and I sat still for a very long time. Even with rehab, I, I didn't exercise outside of the rehab, and then I finally decided to start moving. And I went to the gym and I got a personal trainer and I started going. And within three or four days, I was more tired than I should have been, way more tired. And Brandon, you mentioned it earlier, vitamin D. I went to the doctor and I got tested by somebody else's recommendation because the first thing everybody said was I wasn't drinking enough water. I drink a lot of water all the time. I drink all the time. But it turned out I was vitamin D deficient. And I am now chronically vitamin D deficient. I always have to take vitamin D. And if I don't, I know it because my memory goes, I get sleepy, I, I don't work well at all. But as long as I'm using it, I've got the ability to exercise and, and keep up with my body. So all three of you, great job. You're, you're bringing up some great points. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks.